you guys? Welcome to Ratchet Dojo Radio. I am your host, Ro The Show. In this podcast, we're going to take you down, pass your guard, and then steal your girl. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, you guys. Welcome to Ratchet Dojo Radio. I am your host, Ro The Show. If this is your first time listening and you are wondering what this podcast is about, this podcast is all about jujitsu and everything that revolves around it. Before I introduce to you our guests of the evening, I have to do some housekeeping. So first, if you like this podcast and you're getting something out of it, please tell one of your BJJ friends about it. And please hit that subscribe button. We are dropping new content every Monday and Wednesday, and you do not want to miss them. Mondays, we have our Ratchet Roundtable, and we talk about our experiences moving up the ranks. We offer you advice that may help you in your pursuit of black belt. Wednesdays, we talk to our Ratchet experts that are also jujitsu practitioners and offer you advice in their chosen field of work. So you do not want to miss these. Second, and this is how we pay the bills. Please go to RatchetDojo.com and support the cause by purchasing your limited edition t-shirts for only $25. And now, welcome to Ratchet Dojo. What is up, you guys? Today is Saturday. It's around 11 a.m. It's practically like 80 degrees outside. And guess what? It is summer. Welcome to the Ratchet Dojo. And as always, I'm joined by one of my friends and co-hosts. Today, I am joined by Jiu-Jitsu and Judo Black Belt, the legend himself, Mr. Gary St. Ledger. Say hello, Gary. What's up, guys? How's everything? <laughs> thanks for having me on the show today. <laughs> oh, man. No, thanks for being here. And our guest of the day is... This man is a former UFC and Bellator fighter. He is a third-degree Enzo Gracie and Jiu-Jitsu black belt. I said he is Enzo Gracie and Jiu-Jitsu black belt, as if it's like two different things. You guys think this is easy. This is not easy. No, 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 you know, dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic as a cardiac nurse. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Philippe Nover. What's up? What's up, guys? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being <laughs> here, you guys. What's up, you guys? How are you doing? Uh, the walls are closing what? in on me. <laughs> oh, man. That's not good. Oh, man. Uh, honestly, I feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but things are getting a little crazy, though. That's about it. Yeah, definitely. I've been, I've been speaking to a lot of uh, business owners or academy owners, and they're looking to open up very soon. Uh, I actually spoke to somebody on Tuesday. He's going to open up his academy on Monday in Atlanta, Georgia, but mm -hmm. it's going to be flipping weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a, it's going to be a new norm. Yeah, so man. Yeah, man. Expect a lot of it's going to be open, but there's going to be a lot of different restrictions. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Philippe, as far as our listeners are concerned, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I do recall you when I was like maybe a kid and, you know, I, I, I watched you at the tough finalists of the UFC, the ultimate fighting house. Right. And then you made the finals. You were like one, yeah, of, one um, of my favorite because you're Filipino. Uh, yeah. Thanks, man. <laughs> and I was and I, oh, when I was on the show, I was given a lot of. Uh, I was giving a lot of shout outs to my Filipino heritage. I did that often. I wore like a hat that said, Mahal Kita Lola. I put like, I cook Filipino food. I introduced Balot. Actually on the show, I had Minotaur Nagara eat it. Um, oh you know, Leota Machida ate the Balot. So, but that was back in uh, 2008. I made it to the Ultimate Fighter. I did really well on the show. Uh, made it to the finals. Unfortunately, lost the final fight. Uh, by decision, and then had like a pretty rocky road going in and out of the UFC, fought for them a bunch of times, didn't have like, I lost a few back-to-back -back, uh, after, but they were always like close fights, they were always like um, split decisions, and luckily didn't sustain 
like any like crazy knockouts or injuries in many fights. And then um, I fought all the way up until uh, 2017 right here in Brooklyn. I fought at the Barclay Center. And then that was like pretty much, that was when I had to put an end to that career and, you know, focus on a lot of other things in my life. So, but it was a good run, man. I, I mean, I pursued it as hard as I can. I fought uh, against some of the best in the world. You know, I fought former world champion, um, Hen and Barrow in Brazil. I mean, you know, I fought him also in the Philippines in the first uh, ever UFC Manila card. So, I mean, I had like a full circle career and, uh, you know, it's basically shaped my life completely. Um, but I was, um, I'm lucky I have things to move on to and, and had my brain cells intact throughout my career for the most part. <laughs> and uh, luckily they're good and intact right now. So uh, it's a good, it was a good move to retire in 2017. So now I moved on. That's great. That's great. And uh, how do you know Gary? Actually, uh, Gary, I, I know Gary and Harry, the, you know, the two studs of jiu-jitsu. So, um, you know, we, we actually uh, were in the same neighborhood uh, in Brooklyn. We see each other every now and then. And, and I started teaching at a jiu-jitsu school uh, in Brooklyn and he showed up and uh, we just uh, had a union then. I actually knew him even years before that uh, when I was training also in Canarsie. So, you know, it, it, we always had like these cross uh, paths and then finally you know I taught him a few lessons jiu-jitsu at one school and then you know I knew he was an absolute stud and you know with his judo background and his uh, level of acuity when it comes to listening to uh, to, to technique and he picks it up like a sponge so I knew his, his uh, judo uh, would take off as as well as his jiu-jitsu took off so he's absolute killer on the mat he's like a silent assassin and very good teacher which a lot of people aren't you know, some people might be good in jiu-jitsu, but they're not really good at teaching. But uh, Gary's an absolute stud in both dimensions. So, oh, yeah, you're too kind. You're such a sweetheart, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Yo, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. The very, one of the very first times I met Philippe Nova, the very first time I met Philippe Nova was he actually came into my judo club. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Cafeteria. All right. Yeah, yeah. Parnell Legros. If if people don't know, Philippe Nova uh, fought on the Ultimate Fighter at 170, and then he went down to 155. Is that correct? Uh, well, I I fought before the before getting the Ultimate Fighter. I fought as heavy as 185, then 170, then I came down to 55 on the show, but and then I just kept shrinking. <laughs> so 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 when I ended up meeting Phil, Phil was 200 pounds, and he was a brown belt in <laughs> jujitsu. All right. <laughs> Wow. I don't know. He was definitely, yeah, he was eating a lot, I guess. <laughs> and and his top pressure was like nothing like I've ever seen before. <laughs> so Philippe, yeah, uh, man, I noticed, I noticed um, you know, when you were fighting, uh, you have a very good background as far as like Muay Thai uh, or kickboxing or whatever. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about how did you get started in, in martial arts? Because, you know, in the Philippines, you know, my mom would always tell me to go to school, get good grades and, you know, get out of trouble. But martial arts was the least thing that she wanted me to participate in. Yeah. I tell, well, I tell you the problem with me growing up, I was always in trouble. So <laughs> they, they, they had to have some form of direction to put this energy. So, my parents said, like, this kid is just, uh, him, my, myself and my brother were just had all this energy and I would get into like all kind of, kind of fights and, and all kinds of things, um, throughout like high school. And, but, but I've always like been involved in martial arts. Actually, I was enrolled in like a karate school from age like five to seven. So they always wanted me to focus on the self-defense aspect. Mm. Um, and then I continued in a, in a, a school under Ralph Mitchell which was called Universal Defense Systems, since I was about 10, 11, 12, and I just continued. But I only started taking it very seriously, I think, when I started getting into more trouble. So I would get into trouble and get into fights at school or, or get involved. I was just a very bad kid mm -hmm. um, growing up. I would say high school age. Um, and then I, my, my parents said, you know, you really got to focus on on something. I mean, luckily I didn't fail out of school or anything, but I was just getting caught up with the wrong crowd and doing some wrong things. So, um, the, the uh, martial arts always gave me sort of an outlet of energy, you know, coming in, training, sparring, and it, it definitely helped me, um, focus the energy towards something positive, physical energy. And then, you know, after probably, probably getting experience in a competitive level martial arts, that's when I was like, all right, I really got to focus. I got to stop messing around. 
um, and and just uh, and just be uh, you know and just be competitive with this and take it seriously. And I think I could actually do something with it. And, and you know, I was addicted after I won like a few competitions. That's that's what got me hooked. You got um, it. You know, I, I, can you repeat that? You said you got evicted. No, I got addicted. Okay, God, I I'm got like, what? <laughs> yeah. no, I got I, I got addicted after winning a got few it. fights. I even uh, I remember my first Muay Thai fight. I fought I fought at this like underground Russian show at Atlantic Oceana uh, restaurant. It was like a an unsanctioned in Brooklyn Russian mob. Yeah, in Brooklyn, oh, and there were it was like straight up. There was like a ring in the middle of the restaurant. And I know there was, let me tell you, this, this is like, ratchet. that is ratchet. <laughs> there were like MMA fights when MMA wasn't even like legal going on. And then they also had like a few fighters that were like kickboxers and stuff. So this, I was like, I was 16. I snuck out of my, my, uh, my mom's house. You know, I told my coaches that my mom said it's okay, but really she didn't even know what was going on. And I snuck out and, you know, I wound up fighting a Russian kid um, from another gym and, uh, I wound up beating him and it was really weird. We didn't have any way in. It was like, I think people were betting, you know, it was, people were smoking in this restaurant <laughs> and I wound up winning, which I don't even know how I, I, I really, I put, I think I put a hurting on him, but I really don't know how I won because it went to a judge's decision. Um, and, uh, I wound up not getting hurt or anything. And, and after that I was like, this is, you know, I got to take it up to the next level. I got to, I got to get involved in MMA. You know. It sounds like Kumite in, in Brooklyn. <laughs> it was. It was. Actually, I was so hooked. Uh, a few months later, we scheduled another fight. And when we walked into the restaurant, the police were there and they shut the whole thing down. That's how, how Kumite it was. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is like 2000. A, this is straight out of like an anime uh, uh, movie right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is like 2001, maybe. 2002. Uh -huh. This is like right before I had my first uh, pro MMA fight. So this was like way back, way back. <laughs> any, any more ratchet stories you could tell us? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, after that, I mean, I fought my first pro fight in, um, in New Jersey, which was luckily sanctioned by, you know, the alert New Jersey athletic control board. Like every, every comp sport competition needs to be sanctioned by the state. Uh -huh. And MMA at the time was like very new. So, they had like these boxing referees, these boxing referees come down and, uh, and sanction the fights, but they didn't know about chokeholds. They don't know anything. And, you know, I was just this, uh, young kid. I think I was 19. And, uh, you know, I remember I fought, um, this guy, uh, they called him the choir boy. He actually fought in the UFC actually all the way up to, you know, still when I was fighting, um, I fought him at, at 185 too. I was 185 pounds. All I did to train was like, one day jujitsu, uh, I ate as much as I can. I'm talking about like Entenmann's donuts. I lifted weights like five days a week and I probably like ran once a week. And then I was like, and then maybe boxed like once or twice. It was like really bad training. Um, and I wound up winning. It was crazy. I put him in a, in a guillotine choke, which was, uh, super tight. He went unconscious in, in like 40 something seconds. The referee didn't even know what was going on and he couldn't even, he stopped it, but it was only after like a few, few seconds after the the audience were screaming were like he's he's out he's out stalling stalling he's ron stalling yeah uh -huh. that was crazy we were both just uh, we were both just like uh, young hungry fighters at the time and shout out to him he's he came in super confident he came out to the song mom's gonna knock you out, mom's gonna <laughs> knock you out. <laughs> oh man so <laughs> so and after that man i was super addicted i was like yeah i'm gonna kill everybody this is fucking great <laughs> uh that's man. awesome that's pretty awesome and then uh yeah, as, and then what happened as far as like how did you end up in the tough house can you tell us a so, little bit about uh, that so i continued training i had a few fights after that i signed up for ring of combat i fought a couple of local guys there had some really good outcomes. Just had like knockout after submission and knockout. And then uh, I remember trying out for the ultimate fighter, the first or second ultimate fighter. Dana White came down to Henzo Gracie, New York City. And it was like an interview process. And I think the weight class was like way bigger than me. But I tried out anyway. And I, and I insisted 
on eating as much as possible and training just so I could qualify to get in the house. Um, because like, it was just like this, this was my dream come true. Like I was into MMA for a couple of years already. I was watching UFC and now they actually have a show that you can like qualify to get in and be on TV. So I was like, all right, well the weight classes don't even, don't even qualify for me. So I'll just get bigger, <laughs> which didn't make sense. I, I even have a picture of like all the fighters that were like, that were at the, at, at the tryout at Hensel Gracie. It was, uh, I think Eddie Alvarez was over there, myself, this guy, Andrew Calandrelli, Nardu Debra, I think Pete Sell might have been there. Yeah, I but know, I Andrew. obviously, yeah. yeah, I obviously didn't make it on the show. That was like way too premature. And then I finally, I just uh, kept it in the, you know, kept it in the back of my mind that I'm going to try out once they have a smaller weight class and, um, and I'll actually lose weight. <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, season seven, I was training with, um, Oh, he used to come down to Brooklyn. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Matt Brown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Super stud guy. He used to come down. He was just like an animal. And he said, Hey, believe he's like, dude, they're going to try out, you know, cause he just did the, the ultimate fighter season seven. And he's like, just try out for season eight, you know? And then I was like, all right, I'm going to get everything in line. Like this time I'm going to come in on in shape. I'm going to come in to the tryouts, like ultra prepared. Cause I know you got to be a first alpha person alpha personality on TV. Uh, I'm going to put all my, my, my stuff together. So I sent the tape out with an interview. I had uh, Matt put a good word in for me, Matt Brown. And I also had Matt Sarah put a good word in. And then I had, I had everyone in my pocket by the time I got into the tryouts though, because once they, it was like a process of interview process at the end, but the first process was a, a grappling process. So they, they have all the, all the fighters there along with the, it was Spike TV at the time. Uh, D- Dana White was there and they had like everyone like, pretty much uh, grapple each other for like two minutes. So as soon as they announced my name to grapple, it was in, in front of everybody too. I immediately stripped down to my underwear. So <laughs> it was, Why? It was really, I just, you want to be no, noticed, you know, okay, you're going to be on TV. Immediately stripped down to my underwear. And I really was like, I'm going to fuck this guy up. I don't even have fucking shorts. And, and I think, uh, Kip Collar at the time was there watching and he was like, dude, I'll get you a pair of shorts. I'm like, I don't need it. I don't need it. I only had to, I had like a, a cup on with the underwear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was fucking, it was bizarre, man. It's so bizarre. And I wound up like, there was some, this meathead dude, super strong. He was so angry. I was going to like, he was so angry. And I immediately put him in like a triangle or an on bar in like one minute. So that, that means you could get selected to the phase two portion, which is like uh, punching mitts or something. The whole time I was walking around with a robe on and sunglasses and flip flops. <laughs> this, is, this is inside like the Marriott Hotel, like in the lobby. And there's like produce. I, I just needed to stand out, you know? You got to act crazy to be on TV. So, oh, yeah. I'm a kid, man. A young kid. I was, uh, you know, I was, I, I wanted to make sure I get on. So I made it through the kickboxing phase. That was easy. You don't actually fight anybody. You just punch mitts while they watch you. And then the last portion, uh, you, if you get selected, you get interviewed. So out of, I think there were about like 150 fighters or more. And then it came dwindled down to like 12 people or 15 people got interviewed. So I was one of the last people to get interviewed. And I brought my guitar and my sunglasses. And I wrote a song about how I'm going <laughs> I, I wrote a song how I'm going to kill everyone once I get on TV. And the producers were throwing their papers in the air. They were cracking up. And I just knew it. I had it. I had it. So... Um, and, and then from there on, I think like two, three days later, I got a phone call. It's like, you're going to be on TV. We need you X, Y, Z. You're not allowed to tell anybody. We're sending you the disclosures now. And I was like, oh shit, my dream come true. That's so, what's up, man. <laughs> it was crazy, man. As a young kid, I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 um, Phil, t- talk about that, that moment, that, uh, that moment of, uh, when people were kind of, they, they were betting on you, but. I guess they've called you out and then you fainted. Oh, okay. So here's the thing. So uh, you get selected, you get on a plane and I, at the, by, by the way, I was a nurse at the time. I quit my job because you know, nurse, this is a great career that I'm doing, but I was like, yo, this is better. I'm going to be a fighter. I'm going to be freaking McGregor. Wasn't even, uh, wasn't even known then, but I was like, I'm going to be freaking who knows John Jones. He wasn't even known then. So I'm going to be like George St. Pierre or something in my head. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. be this millionaire. So, but anyhow, I get on a plane and then like, you pretty much are in this hotel lockdown and then you're there for a few days and then they pretty much let you in. They immediately let you into the ultimate fighter gym and they say like, 
you know, and then you're meeting the other fighters there. You see there's a bunch of dudes and there's this one dude who's talking so much. I mean, he is talking himself so much. He's saying, I jumped. He's like, yo, where are you from? And I'm like, uh, New York City. He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, oh, what do you do, jiu-jitsu? Immediately put me in a jiu-jitsu category. Even though I've been striking for even longer than jiu-jitsu. I've been striking since I was 10 years old. But I didn't say a word. He's like, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I did K1. And I, I got like 30 knockouts. Uh, I'm in the military. I jump out of planes. I kill motherfuckers. I'm like, this is all he was saying the whole time. He's I was like, this guy's crazy. Yeah, he's flexing Dude. hard. <laughs> Yeah, everybody was scared of him, man. Everybody was scared of him. Uh, his name was Joe Duarte. And, uh, dude, the kid is a killer. I think he's a real killer, man. Yeah. Did you just say Duarte? <laughs> Did you just say Duarte? Joe. He's like, that's like the president's name right now in the Philippines, Duarte. No, that's Duarte. Oh, no, Joe it. Duarte. I was about to say. <laughs> no, no, he's not a relative. I don't think so. He was, dude, he was scary, man. And And then finally they line us up and they're like, Dana's like, yo, all right, this one's going to fight this guy. This guy's going to fight this guy. I was hoping, you know, not to get lined up with this guy. And obviously they're like, yo, Philippe Nover versus Joe Duarte. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <In my head. laughs> I'm like, this guy's fucking killing people out of airplanes, man. He's jumping out of fucking helicopters with machine guns. This guy's going to kill me. <laughs> so I immediately, and then, you know, you know what? I was also cutting weight, like, at the time. I never fought at 55. The lights were, like, it was hot in Vegas. I just remember looking up, the anxiety built up, the dehydration built up, and I just, on camera, I just collapsed. <laughs> when they did the announcement, like, a few minutes after the announcement, we were all lined up, and then I just was like, Dunk! and I just remember passing out. Well, I don't remember passing out. I just remember waking up, and people were shaking me, shaking my feet. And everybody was just like, yo, this is real, man. Like, And then uh, I just remember becoming sweaty as hell. I was diaphoretic, like covered in sweat. Uh, and they said, and then Dana and like the producers after they were like, you know, you could still fight. I think you're okay. You want to get checked out? Checked out? I'm like, I'm fine. I, I think I, I think I'm fine. And then <laughs> I think the doctor did say, if I want to get checked out, I said, I'm good. Let's fucking do this. And from there, it was just like, yo, game on, do or die. And we went back to our hotel rooms and I just remember like not sleeping for a couple of nights <laughs> and, uh, and then coming in focus. So when they, when they announced the fight, they announced that I'm coming out and, you know, just being backstage. And you, what's weird is no cornermen are there. There's no audience. It's just, just you. And then, uh, when I fought him, I, I really did a good job. I, um, came out just like focused in a, in killer mode. And he was surprised the whole time. Actually, I psyched him out too, because he saw me working out days before the fight. All I was doing, like, was shooting double legs on the double on the uh, on the heavy bag, which is ridiculous. So I was like fake shooting these fake ass double le uh, double legs and single legs, and like not even good technique at all. And he was just looking at me like, mm -hmm, I know what you're gonna do. And I like, there was no way I was shooting in on this guy. All I wanted to do was kick him in the head. And the moment the fight started, I just started kicking and punching and kicking. And he didn't realize I could punch, I guess. And uh, it was brutal, man. I uh. I landed some solid elbow. The, the best shot for me were when I got on top of him and I landed elbows to his to his to his face. Man, that was like really violent and brutal. And I knew from there, like, there's no way this guy's gonna beat me. Like, I think I got him in Kimura. <laughs> Did I get him in Kimura? Oh no, rear naked choke. I got him in a rear naked choke after like uh, mounting him or something and ground and pound. That was like my killer mode, man. That was like bloodthirsty Felipe Nova, man. Um, <laughs> 24 years old, man. So, and then that's when it started and I got on the show. Man. Pretty, pretty nuts. Got in the house. <laughs> that's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, and, and how was your uh, UFC career moving on? So, yeah, I mean, uh, from there, you know, I was, I was a killer in the house, which was, it was a little, it was a little weird, I guess, because it was a little weird. I, um, I think I did way better without an audience. I did way better probably at the gym. And then when it came down to like fighting in front of a lot of people, I think that <clears throat> I might've been more conservative and shelled up. Yeah. Not to say that, you know, it, it, it happens. It, it's uh, maybe a slight, it, it improved later in my career because I was just used to it, but it takes years to develop that ability to perform in front of thousands of yeah, people. It's like performance Some people anxiety, to, right? It's like performance anxiety. I would say that. The last three fights yeah. of the UFC just held is like, you know, it's, it's been pretty fucking wild. Like they, they've been going at it and there is no fans. So I'm like, yeah, 
is it because they're just in gym mode or is it just because there's no fans involved? It's kind of wild. I think I, I think it could be a... I feel like, you know, when there's less pressure from the fans, I mean, there's some fighters who don't give a shit. They have that good mentality, that Nate Diaz mentality. Even McGregor has that mentality where he really doesn't give a fuck type of mentality. But I feel like as I progressed in my career and got back into uh, the UFC and got back into fighting... I also started building other things in my life and then that made it more risky to fight. So, you know, that also might've been a factor. So, but I, you know, I still continued my career in fighting, man. And I fought, fought plenty, um, you know, around the world and right here in, yeah, I fought at the MGM, I fought at Mandalay Bay, you know, I fought in Atlantic city. It was, it was a great time. Um, but then, uh, you know, I had an injury too, actually after the ultimate fighter, I had an injury. I had, um, I never wrestled. Um, collegially and I was just developing my wrestling skills so my body wasn't I would say conditioned for wrestling especially you know I only did it for a year or two so I started getting this neck pain so uh, I realized I had a herniated disc and uh, it was a scary time and I finally after a year of being in pain <clears throat> I went to uh, four different physicians and one of the doctors was you know a super UFC fan and and was like like dude I'm gonna get you back in there and and um if you get the surgery. So I actually had neck surgery. I had a total displacement. Wow. Yeah. That was, that was uh, pretty crazy. So after that, six, seven months, I had a pro Muay Thai fight again, just to test out my neck. <laughs> and I did that in New York city. It was amazing. Like being able to fight in New York city at the time was great. Cause first of all, we didn't have MMA being legal. And then after that, I just started piling on the MMA fights again and then got signed back in the UFC, uh, like in 2015. So, and I had a, a few fights with them and then, you know, a couple of losses and that was it. <laughs> so when did you make your move to Bellator? Uh, so after the neck surgery, I, um, I fought, you know, I had the Muay Thai fight and then I fought, I think in ring of combat or, or I had like a Dakota fighting championship thing, uh, which, um, I think it was called Dakota or no Hooser, Hooser fight club. Got it. And I fought there against a pretty good wrestler and I beat him. That was a crazy experience, by the way. Tell us more. You want to hear a ratchet story? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> You've come got, to the right place. <laughs> all right. This is the wildest, this is the wildest story that I have for my MMA career where I thought I was going to die, man. So I get neck surgery and I haven't cut weight. I fought like, I never fought at like 55 or even 60. All I've been doing I mean, like, I mean, I haven't been down there to that weight in like over a year and a half, two years. So I, in my corner, I have uh, Dave Esposito, Jason Stroud, and Dave Branch. And I was listening to Branch about weight cutting and he's a big man and he can, you know, he can get rid of more weight easily than I, than I can. And I remember listening to him. He's like, he's like you can eat, believe you can eat. I'm like, are you sure? He's like, you can eat. So we get to, you know, I get to the, um, I think, uh, I get to the, uh, to the, location and I, I'm at the hotel and I'm like, all right, I guess I can eat the morning of the weigh in. I wake up and I wake up and I'm 12 pounds over. Jeez. Wow. So I'm like, okay, this is not good. And by the way, a week and a half before the fight, I actually sprained my ankle and nobody knows it. I never told anybody this. I have a sprained ankle. <laughs> so my, uh, my, one of my ankles is completely fucked. So I'm like, I'm wearing an ACE bandage, 12 pounds overweight. I'm like, all right, I got to run. I got to do this. I got to do that. And I just stop. Like I do all the things that I'm supposed to do and I get rid of like five pounds. All right. So I'm like seven pounds overweight and I'm nowhere near the, uh, nowhere near the, my, my weight class. And I remember jogging around like a pool in the hotel, sitting in the, the sauna wasn't hot enough. I did all these things. Um, and I was still, I think three pounds over. And at this point, Jason's in the car and he's like blasting death metal music. And I'm sitting in the driver's side, <laughs> sitting in the driver's side. my whole body's clamping up. I'm going in and out of consciousness. And I hear him like, I, I hear him like screaming, like, just like trying to fucking make me move a little bit to get the sweat going. And he's driving to the weigh-in. And I'm like, no, nah, take me to the hospital. I'm going to fucking die. Like my, all my whole body was clamp, cramping up my abs, my, especially my abs, my legs, everything. So finally, um, they bring me to the weigh-in. I'm 
I think two and a half pounds over by the time I get to the weigh-in. I'm already late to the, I'm already late to the weigh-in. And then the fighter I'm fighting is, I think his name was Jake Murphy. Um, he, who fought out of Albuquerque, um, in Jackson Fight Club. So I get there, they're all upset. First of all, the commission's upset. And I go in there and I can hardly even walk and I'm overweight. And they're like, we're going to take, you know, we'll just take 20% of your purse. And I'm like, no. I'm like, I'm going to cut the weight. I just, it wasn't anything about, I didn't even make any money. I made like a couple grand. I, it doesn't even matter to me. It was just the point that I never wanted in my career to be, to miss weight. I want to be as professional as possible. But just being ill, how ill prepared I was, I was like, all right, I'm going to suffer. So we sat in the car of this LA boxing gym with the heat on like a hundred degrees, um, with the sun in the back peering on us. And I'm sitting there and trying to fucking just like, move my body, shake, shake in the front of the car, like just, just, uh, while, while Espo's like rubbing my back with my, with my, with my, uh, what do you call it? Yeah. With my, um, uh, plastics on. And I'm, I'm like little dribbles of sweat, little dribbles of sweat. And I think I have like, they gave me like two hours, I think. And I go in finally and I check it again and I'm still a pound over. And they're like, you want to just get the 20% taken off? I'm like, no. And I get dragged back into the car and I do another like 40 minutes. And I remember at that point, like I couldn't walk. I was literally like naked outside of this car, like taking my plastics off, <laughs> like sweating on the side of this parking lot. If any cops came by, they might've thought this is like a kidnapping or a rapage. <laughs> so, they're, they're like dragged. They're, they're, these guys are, my cornermen are like dragging me to my feet. I'm naked in the back of the uh, uh, of the uh, parking lot, taking my my plastic off, and I finally make it to the uh, you know to I'm like getting dragged in, and I actually make the weight, which was crazy, man. I remember that was like one of the best feelings to make the weight, but I really was like on the teeter totter of death. Damn. <laughs> and I from that point on, yeah, I could never I could never fuck with like missing weight. The the pride of a fighter is dangerous. It, it can get in so much trouble. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, that was bad. I learned my lesson, man. I totally learned my lesson. Uh, I luckily I did come out and win that fight. I don't know how. I mean, I did IV up, which was good at the time. You know, it's, it was legal uh, to the commission. But I, when I used to IV, I just IV myself. <laughs> so I IV'd up, and and you know, I wound up you know winning. Jeez, it was a crazy fight. It was a decision too. Um, but I kind of out wrestled them too, which was a good, good experience for me. Cause I wasn't a good wrestler, uh, until, you know, a confident, I didn't have that wrestler confidence, but, uh, that was a crazy experience, man. You know, not being able to, to get to my weight class and, uh, and almost dying, you know, <laughs> man. Man, the things that you guys have to do. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's pretty gnarly. And as far yeah. as like, um, you know, at the end of the latter part of your career, uh, when did you start to realize that, you know what, maybe it's time to close shop? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I, I would, I would say that my body just wasn't reacting as fast as I wanted to react. My conditioning wasn't as high as it was going to, as I compared to a few years ago. What was weird though, which is my technique, my technique was like so much better. You know, I, I knew so much more, but I knew so much more strategy wise i knew so much more you know mental preparation wise it's just that my body wasn't you know up to par with these younger 20 year old guys oh, you know man. Um, I, can, and- I can relate to that because when i got my black belt when i was 41 i'm a little bit too old to be using this <laughs> <laughs> yeah man crazy so you're 41 uh, i'm 42 actually <laughs> Wow. Yeah, Filipino oh, jeans, man. bro. The Asian jeans. Yeah, dude. Yeah, man. <laughs> Gary got that. <laughs> he's got oh, yeah, he's got that. Yeah. I definitely got Melvin. that. <laughs> <laughs> Black don't crack. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So um, y- your body wasn't responding as, as well as it used to be. Um, how did you close it out? Well, I think uh, I went into the fight at the Barclay Center with the possibility thinking that this might be my last fight. Being that also was my last fight on my contract, mm-hmm. and uh, I I thought you know I actually thought it was a good fight. A lot of people thought I won. Some websites thought I won, and the fans thought I won. But uh, after that, 
I was like, you know what, this is just not going to work. Even if I went and won that fight, I, I'm not sure how. I probably wouldn't afford again. You know, it's just, it's just the risk reward wasn't there anymore. Too, God forbid, I get hurt. Uh, you know, I could be out from work too, which is weird. I mean, like I, I have a real career outside of fighting too. So if I like break my hand, I'll, I'll, I'll I could lose my. I could lose money at my real job, you know, mm-hmm. which is like my real future and my my benefits and everything. So, you know, that's when I, I decided I got to do the smarter thing. You know, not not necessarily give up my, my enjoyment and my, my passion for fighting because I still love it. I still am involved in, in the world of fighting. Yeah. Um, you know, through, just through other aspects, I just can't be the one who's getting punched in the face. <laughs> no, I feel you. I feel I you. Uh, you know, I can help out with coaching. I can help out with with all types of stuff, even just uh, with with uh, keeping myself healthy and training. You know. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, what a ride, man. Yeah, man. Crazy, crazy ride. <laughs> and now, as far as your career is concerned, uh, I know you're a cardiac nurse. Um, how's that been going as far as uh, being in the front lines? So, first of all, you know, uh, like wow, like you know, uh, I heard about you again uh, when Dana White was pretty much, uh, you know, giving you props for being on the front line, you know, and I do recall him um, comparing you to George St. Pierre when you were in the tough house and uh, you were, as he said, you were stud then and you're stud now. So um, yeah. So what's the situation as far as uh, the hospitals are concerned? I would say the situation as of a few months ago was pretty tough. I'm talking about like even the weeks leading up to this initial pandemic phase, initial outbreak phase was pretty scary. Mm-hmm. All of our, my coworkers, I work in a cardiac cath department. So we essentially, we, uh, we put stents in, in people's hearts who might need it. We do diagnostic procedures just to take pictures of people's coronary arteries. <clears throat> we also do some other cardiac procedures, but uh, primarily that's, you know, that's what we do. But uh, so we are, we have a portion of our, Staff that I mean, a portion of our uh, work that would be emergency related, like for people who are having current heart attacks or near heart attacks, we got to get them in 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 our lab and open that coronary artery quick. And we also have a portion where you know it's a scheduled procedure; it could be a few months. You know, you might have some questionable things on your EKG um, or some other cardiac test. So this is like the definitive test that we do. So we were, you know, we're we're a pretty busy lab itself, serving the community just with their cardiac needs. And then we get word from management like, yo, we got this, this, this might be getting real. And so basically we were told like, you know, you can volunteer if you want to go to other departments. It's either going to be the emergency room, the intensive care unit, which is the two areas of the hospital that would experience the most COVID patients. Uh, and, uh, uh, or you could be uh, also on the code team, which is pretty much just running around the entire hospital uh, dealing with codes. So I initially signed up for uh, emergency room and, uh, and the code team of like a week later. So I was uh, teeter tottering between both areas. Um, you know, and then in the thick of it, I mean, we were, we had our entire hospital that I was working at was 95% or more COVID patients. So, you know, that, that might require IC level care. So they would require, uh, um, they would require some, uh, non-invasive oxygen supply, which would be like just nasal cannula or they would have like a non-rebreather mask. And then we would up it to like, uh, to, uh, other oxygen supply. Like it's called a BiPAP CPAP. These are all things not to intubate people, not to put on a ventilator. Cause you don't really want to put these patients on ventilators. Mm-hmm. At the time we didn't have the data behind the ventilators. I remember, I don't know if you remember watching the news. They're like, we need ventilators. We need ventilators. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. But we didn't have the data. So that's the thing. That's why we like we had all these things. We had to get prepared for everything because we didn't have the data. But the data shows if you get put on a ventilator, the chances of getting off the ventilator are like very low, like 10% in some hospitals, you know, 15%. Like, so you're talking about you get on the vent and now you have an 85% chance you're going to die. So it was like, yeah. So between that, on top of that, um, the majority of, patients also at the time, we didn't even have, have enough testing. So a lot of patients would come in with COVID-like symptoms who were not symptoms, who were not uh, emergent, who were breathing okay, and we just send them home and tell them to quarantine. It was just those few that were like very critical who would deteriorate so fast um, that so, needed this care. So I'm, I'm curious. So how do you, how 
Would you say that those tests, the uh, you know those uh, the COVID and the antibody tests, would you think those are pretty reliable? I would say no. I tell you, I tell you from my personal experience, and I, I I've been tested a number of times already with both. Um, mm-hmm. So I have coworkers that that were, I have co- a lot of coworkers that got it. You know, mm-hmm. I've been lucky, and all my tests were negative. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have coworkers that got, I have, I have a few coworkers that got sick. I even have two colleagues that actually passed away from it. So this shit is like pretty real. Now, they were not the healthiest people. They were a little older. So, you know, for them to be exposed, it was, it's pretty sad when you see that. But uh, the majority of my coworkers who got it uh, were okay. And they just quarantined for a week and a half at home you know, made sure their fevers didn't spike too high, hydrated well, and it's just it's self-limited. So you just have to stay home and not shed the virus to other people. Mm-hmm. But as far as testing, so there's two types of tests that I know healthcare workers are getting tested with. The first test is the uh, COVID, uh, SARS-2 COVID nasal swab, which is like this deep, I put it on my Instagram last, this deep swab where they literally like almost swabbing your brain. It's very, very uncomfortable. And that gets a piece of the viral load. So your viral load is low enough, and even though you were infected, it would come out negative. Mm-hmm. So that's, I was tested with that, and it came out uh, negative. I have friends that had negative tests for nasal swab, and then just recently tested positive for antibodies. So they really had it, you know. So if you have the antibodies, you likely have exposure. You know? um, so that's, I was uh, tested twice for antibodies and both of my antibodies, what's weird is my antibodies came out that I had such a minuscule amount that it wasn't positive, but mm-hmm. it did say there were. So it's very weird how, how the reliance level, because we don't even have the data on that. When, you know, you, when you're dealing with like lab values, you need to have years of data and trials. So we're just streamlining this and rushing it out. But, uh, you know, and the healthcare workers are the most ones who are getting tested, I think, because we're on the front line dealing with them, with patients. And uh, But, I mean, reliance, I'm not sure. I mean, what studies show, some study I was seeing, it was like a 60%, 50% with antibodies. So, you know, and then it also depends how, how well the tester is doing the test when it comes to the nasal swab. Uh, if you're really going deep and getting a piece of the mucus, you know, inside their nose. So that's another factor. So. But I mean, I, I, I had I had to ask because I got tested on Thursday. Yeah. So I'm still waiting for my test. You know. Okay. And, um, yeah, and uh, I, they they put that swab in my nose. I felt like they tickled my brain. So yes, yeah, man, like, that thing went down far. I was just like, I I just couldn't believe it. And I've seen a lot of the UFC fighters were recently the the corners. You know, of course, we've heard the story between, uh, about um, Jacare testing positive as well as two of his cornermen testing yeah. positive. And I've been watching the videos of everybody getting the uh, the the Q tip down the nose and man, it looks uncomfortable. So I was kind of a little hesitant about doing it, but I think it's just the right thing to do. But, you know, I I, I was never really uh, sold that there was a reliable test because there hasn't been enough testing in general, especially for yeah. something so new. Yeah. I would, I, I'd say you're right, man. I would say you're right. But it, it's, it's, it's sort of like the only weapon we have right now. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Like it's, it might not be the most reliable, but it's like, it's just, it's something, you know, rather than nothing. And, you know, it's, it, it's, um, and then on top of that, when they produce this vaccine, which is every, you know, there's a lot of competing companies, uh, competing for this vaccine, but there's no data behind this vaccine because a real vaccine takes at least four years or more to get, uh, produced and approved by the FDA. So this is going to be pretty wild, man. Who's going to be the first to try to get the vaccine and, you know, if it actually doesn't have long-term effects, who knows what what issues you'll have years later. You know, there's so many things in the body we don't know. Yeah. So it's still a scary time ahead. Yeah, man, a lot, uh, a lot of tests that need to be done concerning the COVID-19. And uh, like I said, uh, thank you for being on the front lines. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, how does that make you feel as far as like, uh, you know, 7 p.m., everybody's just clapping for, you know, the frontline workers? I think, I think we get, I mean, it's amazing. We got a lot of respect. Um, healthcare workers are suddenly getting a lot of respect for, for treating um, the community. I mean, this is what our, we signed up for, is to treat the community for all the issues that, that they have, regardless mm-hmm. what it is. So, um, but, and we are putting ourselves at risk. Um, 
But at, at this point, it's a little overwhelming. We, we're good at the hospital right now. Uh, all the hospitals that I know and that I'm friends with, that people work in hospital and the hospital I work, we are quiet. Man. We need to get back to work. We need to get back to living our lives. Yeah. Uh, these, this lockdown is overdue, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist. I am not a professional when it comes to virus, virus spreading. But I tell you what the data shows is the curve is flattening and it's already on the downtrend and we need to do something to save our economy. There are healthcare workers that are getting getting laid off and furloughed too because there's a huge part of healthcare where it's not only it's diagnostic things going on, doctors offices, clinics, like all these people need to get back to work. Um yeah. and they need to do it safely and you know New York has to open soon. I think it's going to be June 8th. Um but I I, I do uh, I'm happy that people appreciate the healthcare team and and treating a community when they're clapping at seven o'clock, you know, I definitely, I'll go out there myself and scream and stuff. And sometimes the fire trucks came around our hospital. It was, it, it was a great experience. You know, That's awesome. To see these things. That's great. So, so here, here's, here's, you know, with all these things that are going on right now, um, do you think, especially with all these protests, you think there might be a spike? Ah, man, anything is possible. Um, you know, I, with, with all the, with all the things opening up and this crazy is what our country is going through right now is just. I think the. I mean, it, it could possibly be a spike. Um, I'm hoping that the data from the other states that show that that opened up originally, we could see how it's trending. The whole purpose of this uh, of this containment and lockdown was to prevent a healthcare system crash. In other words. We don't want people lining up in front of the hospital and dying in the street. We want to be able to treat everybody systematically and everyone deserves health care. So that didn't happen. Even at the peak of it where it was uh, two months ago, it didn't happen. So now with the nation seeing and respecting at the most part, respecting like this is a real virus. It's not fake. It can kill people. The data is in. So now people can go about their lives and just be safe about it. Wear a mask. If you feel sick, stay home, wash your hands. Um, stay away from the elderly. If you're uh, immunocompromised or sick, stay out of the street. You know, these things are important. And then we can go about living our lives because it's really not about quarantining the healthy anymore. You got to kind of be, you got to go out. Our bodies, our human uh, evolution occurred this way by, you know, being exposed to <clears throat> different uh, uh, microbes and, and, and surviving. And <clears throat> a lot of my coworkers who got it uh, are fine. They're great. You know, um, there are a few, obviously, that, you know, it, it does happen, but you can't live your life not going and crossing the street because a car might hit you. Mm-hmm. So we really got to open up, just do it safely. You know, there's got to be a safe means to do it. Uh, as far as the protesters, man, this is a crazy time happening right now. I mean, yeah, man. Uh, yeah. This is nuts, man. This is nuts. Yeah. So I just hope we can overcome this and, you know, justice should be served. You know, I, just, I feel bad for the... I feel bad for the business owners that, that are experiencing this damage. But the, the thing is, these people are on, on top of the violence that happened. These people are on lockdown and and experiencing like all this thing is just a buildup of all this anger. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. it's sad, man. It's bad yeah. time. Definitely. Uh, tensions are high. And, um, you know, especially the summer coming on uh, is here, I should say. Uh, you know, hotheads, yeah. you know, so just everybody just do your best to chill out, you know, so to speak. Um, yeah. yeah uh, just just so, be safe, man. Yeah. yeah. And definitely be safe. Uh, as far as um, changing the topic here, uh, just because you're one of the experts, so to speak, uh, what do you think about UFC 250 card? Hmm. Okay. I have, dude, I'm so, I'm so out of the loop, man. <laughs> Who's on 250 card? <laughs> it's all right. So- Amanda Nunes versus Felicia Spencer. So uh, Amanda you, Nunes is nineteen and four, and Felicia, Felicia Spencer is eight and one. I think Amanda's gonna demolish. Yeah, Amanda is an absolute killer, man. Yeah. I've, I've I've seen her a few times. I've watched her fight her whole career, man. She just demolishes people, and I'm a fan of her. She's she's great, man. She's exciting to watch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she keeps, she keeps on evolving. It's going to be very hard to beat that girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she's going to be reigning for the next few years, in my opinion. But um, all right, so we're coming to a close here, Philippe. Uh, any last words of wisdom, advice, uh, maybe some coaching for up and coming fighters, or just maybe just an inspirational? Because you sound like a very inspirational person. You definitely lived the you you, you walk the talk. So um, 
anything that comes out of your Thanks. mouth, man, it's to help out. Uh, I would say for, for the young athletes who are out there looking to uh, get an opportunity in this fighting career, I would, you know, I would just say to go smart about it. Um, and you got to keep evolving, you know, don't, don't let, uh, certain loyalties hold you back. I would say you got to be loyal to yourself and, and, um, and just keep getting better. Look for the best information and every day improve every day that I was, uh, improving was a day that I didn't get injured. And I actually made a minor improvement. It's like a chipping away and building this like huge structure, but you can't do it overnight. It takes years and years and years to develop. Um, and you'll go through in and out of, of different phases in your career, you know, and you have to look at the whole thing, not just also fighting. I would say there's different elements, um, you know, your marketability, um, your strategy, how you're building your career, how long term you want to fight. There's so many different elements into the fight game that, that play a role. So, you know, for the young athletes, you know, stay out, stay, you know, stay busy and stay injury free because all these things can, can, can bump you off your career as well as discipline. So all these things are huge factors. You know, I've had, I've had people who were really good and got injured and that's it, changed their career. I have friends that are super, super talented, but have no discipline. You know, I have friends who are super talented, but just too loyal to move on to a new different uh, training system and new coaches. So there's all types of different, you got to kind of be true to yourself. Know this is your storybook. You're writing it, your life, you're living. And, um, and you could actually become something big, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That's great words, man. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, brother. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, Gary, any last words? No, nothing, man. That was a great show, man. I had a good time. You know, I, I love hearing stories. Uh, I love hearing some of these stories. Um, I've heard some of these stories before that Phil has told me in a little bit more of an animated, <laughs> yeah, more animated way, but, uh, you know, some, some are good and some of them are horrible, <laughs> but, uh, definitely, you know, like, uh, definitely a good guy to know. And, uh, you know, thank you again for everything that you do, man. And, uh, like, like you know, yeah. even when I have an issue, Phil is actually one of the first guys I get, uh, I, I have to, <laughs> to you know, yeah, like, man, uh, I don't time, feel like man. Yeah, anytime I don't feel like going to the hospital, you know, this this is a good guy to <laughs> Yeah, man. What do you need? Anything you need, brother. <laughs> uh, right, Philippe, Thanks. you're definitely Thanks, an, an OG. Uh thank you for being here. Uh where can people find you as far as social? Just uh, my name, Felipe Nover. Uh at that's my uh, Twitter handle, my IG. Hit me up anywhere, you know, and I usually I'm usually interact with everybody who reaches out. So I'm just a laid back Brooklyn guy, man. That's what's up. <laughs> Brooklyn's finest. All right, yeah. guys. Um, so this is again, once again, this is a Rota show uh, from Ratchet Dojo. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, you guys stay safe out there and keep a level head. All right, you guys. Thanks Thank a lot. You. All right. Take care, guys. Peace. Take care.